my life was an upward trajectory. I worked hard in school. I took a lot of pride in what I did. I genuinely believe that if I worked hard enough, you could kind of will things to happen, and they would happen. There's this underlying belief that really none of us want to admit until it happens, I think. Bad things don't happen to good people. Brad Swearingen is like a lot of us. We have a plan for life. We make good decisions because that's how you avoid problems. When problems do come up, we solve them, building mastery that we rely on over time until we can't. This story is a story of trauma and its many unseen threads. It is the story of how Brad and his family came up against the worst kind of a problem, a problem that was devastating and also one they couldn't control, couldn't will their way through, couldn't solve. This is a story of befores and afters, of changing expectations and perspectives, of learning to let go. Or as Brad put it, it's a story of what happens when the bubble pops. How do you survive something you can't change or solve? This is a story of growth. Welcome to Threads Unseen. In this series, we'll explore those threads that lie under the surface, the ones we don't always know are there, holding us together, holding us to each other, getting in the way of connection with others. We'll unravel one family's trauma, and in the process, find some threads in the patterns they create that are familiar to us all. This is episode one, The Bubble Bursts. So, Brad, here we are sitting in your basement of your beautiful home. We can hear the kids upstairs. You can hear the music playing, the sounds clanking. Everything feels pretty normal. Yes. No, thank you. <laughs> thank you for coming out. This is a typical day in the Swearingen household. I'm your narrator, Sherry Fella, CEO and founder of Bloombase, a leadership development practice founded on the belief that we as humans have unlimited capacity to change ourselves our lives, and impact the people around us. At Bloombase, coaching is where we create space for the unfolding of your story. What's driving you? What's motivating you? What's holding you back? What might be blocking you? What is within you that is knocking to be heard, listened to, held with care, and recognized? Unlocking insights to guide your leadership journey, to guide your human journey. And that's how I met Brad and eventually came to learn his story. After some time in the safe and sacred coaching space that we created together came an unfolding. Through Brad's deep work and exploration and with a brave heart, he grappled with himself until last year he recognized he was ready to share a story. A story that unfolded through the caves of his interior landscape. A story of trauma and its unseen threads. An inner journey with such power that it upended both his personal life and his professional growth. His whole self was impacted. For you listeners, this podcast series digs into emotional and physical trauma involving both adults and children and shares details of a traumatic brain injury. The areas we explore may be triggering to some listeners. If listening to people discuss experiences of trauma and mental health struggles openly and deeply would be unhealthy for you in this moment, stop your journey with us here. If hearing this might help you, let's continue together. So what was the name of the town you grew up in? I grew up in London, Indiana. It was a town of about 150. We had a train tracks running through it. We have a local stop sign. <laughs> and it's, it's as country as it gets. And it's a wonderful place to grow up as a kid. 
I tell you, there's there's some days, I think it's like in my family, they we're all farmers on my mom's side and then mostly uh, tradesmen on my, my dad's side. There are some days where you'll sit, look out the window and be like, I was meant to be outside. <laughs> <laughs> Very much. I, I can relate. So, I can relate. So what values did that imprint on you, that childhood? Yeah, that's a good good question. That if you work hard, you could make your accomplishments happen. And that definitely had come through. I think if you're good to others, that will be good in your life in some way. And my parents taught that. Really, the, the worst things that had happened to me was I did go through a rough patch of getting bullied in school. That basically taught me to trust very few people. Uh, Amanda will joke if I really trust anyone at all, but there are a few people that I trust. And the grandma that I was closest to died early when I was a teenager. But other than that, it was very much a, if you work hard in life, life will pay you back. I went to engineering school at Rose Holman and started a career at Boeing in St. Louis and loved the city of St. Louis, a wonderful town to uh, become an adult in, I guess. <laughs> That'd be how I phrase that. And I'd say even before I got married, I was very career-oriented. Brad had known his wife Amanda for years. She was his best friend's little sister, but they didn't connect as a couple until he moved to St. Louis. The romance is quick, both sure they had found the right partner. Amanda tells the story. We started hanging out, and I went out to visit him in St. Louis, and we went out the first night, and I was like, I think we should get married. And he's like, I think you're a little crazy. <laughs> and I was like, no, I'm serious. And he's like, all right, I'm in. And, like, that was kind of how the conversation went. Like, we're just, like, we're, like, I see super... a pattern here. Yeah. He was like, that sounds fine. Uh, and we did. We just hung out. And then I think it was, like, three months later, and he he went to ask my parents if he could marry me. And my, my dad was, like, watching TV, and he just... Like he was kind of, Brad was kind of talking to my mom and my dad was just watching TV and she's like, Mark, are you hearing that he, what he's asking? And my dad turned around, he's like, when you know, you know, and he just turned back around and like kept watching the game and that was fine. That's a true story. That's awesome. So, okay, life's moving on. What do you think your life would be like? 2005, you tie the knot. Clearly you thought you'd had kids. What did you think it was going to be like? Can you remember back then? Yeah. At that time, I was very much in a work-only type mode. I think Amanda was my first kind of pull away from that in some some way. In fact, I think that's how my boss at the time, Kevin, said he knew because it was the first time I'd really not focused on something so hard or, I guess, work in that capacity. Brad and Amanda were building successful careers. Brad is an engineer at Boeing and Amanda was working as a parole officer and with at-risk youth. Like a lot of couples, things changed with the birth of their first child, Allie, in 2007. So a colleague I worked with at Boeing, he had moved back to work at Rolls-Royce and said, do you want to come move back home? Yeah, took the opportunity to do that. They decided to move back to Indianapolis to be closer to family. Amanda focused on being a full-time at-home mom, And then a second daughter, McKenna, or as we know her, Kenna, followed in 2009. Their son, Gavin, arrived in 2012. Meanwhile, Brad's career was advancing at an impressive pace. 
uh, was brought in to help with software and ended up help building a team where they they built software capability. In fact, we did some risky, cool stuff that hadn't been done in FAA history and eventually became the director of engineering for Controls North America. It was really something special because it was all built from the ground up. Denny Warner, Ann Eaton, and Janice Casale all worked with Brad in what was a new business division at their company, Rolls-Royce. Here's Brad's former boss, Denny Warner. I've known Brad just starting through the business relationship. And what struck you about Brad when you first met him? I liked his honesty. I liked his integrity. I liked him as a person. He can be very blunt, but in a good way. And I was looking for somebody that would kind of shake up the organization, but at the same time take accountability. And uh, I made a good choice. How about for you, Ann? When I met Brad, he joined the organization. And I did not doubt his technical ability. We butted heads quite a bit, however, because I would say at that particular time, he wasn't very self-aware. So we butted heads, and I remember Denny telling me once, you don't have to like him, you have to work with him. So it grew. It would have helped if you liked him right away. <laughs> it would have. <laughs> I got that same advice. Yeah. Here again is Brad's colleague, Janice. So when I first met him, I mean, he's very similar to me in the way that I think we're both very direct, hold accountable, those types of things and that you want when you're working. Denny had us working together. Brad was engineering manager. I was a program manager on a pretty significant project. The best way I've described how we did what we did from an execution point of view professionally is we did a lot of good things. We worked really hard, but we had fun while we were doing it. And that is by having great leadership above you, autonomy to do what you need to do, to make decisions and have the ability, have people have confidence in you that you know what you're doing. So Brad was good at his job, but not always the most likable leader. He was more closed off, more focused on the work, not the people, just as he learned in his childhood. And I think this is important because this kind of shaping is what we see in leaders consistently. There was a day that we were having a disagreement and I was trying to tell him how others saw him, which he was not able to accept. So there is, within the HR world, uh, some methods. And we were chatting, and I was sorting through a list of attributes. And I'm just putting them into a pile, and I handed him a half dozen of these attributes, and I said, Brad, this is how others see you. And he looked at it, and he was very offended, very offended indeed. And he went, and I said, take them, take them home. And he took this little group of cards home, shared them with Amanda, and she apparently looked at him and said, that's exactly how you are. So he came in the next day and he said, I, I think I am starting to get it. Brad was starting to get it. To build awareness of himself and of others, Awareness is required for anyone to grow as a person, as a leader, as a team member, as a father, or in any role Brad might play. 
a thread would form here that would help pull him through something much bigger than work relationship or any conflicts that problem solving could be applied to. That story starts on May 5th, 2014. The family just calls it the accident. Amanda loves nature, so on a beautiful fall day, we met at her house and sat outside to talk. I am an over-the-top person. It's just who I am by nature. In fact, it's so much so that my family uses my name as a verb. I amended this, right? Um, (laughs) And on Cinco de Mayo, I woke up with this crazy notion that I was going to throw a Cinco de Mayo party. I didn't talk to anybody about it. I didn't run it by anybody. I just made a decision in my own head that I was going to make 10 pounds of rice and a ridiculous amount of, and I was going to make flan for the first time. So I woke up and I had two kids in school and then I had Gavin with me who was two. And like, there was just no reason for me to wake up and be, go that. (laughs) Like I did not need to make flan for the first time. Right. (laughs) But I remember waking up and being like, I'm going to do this big because that's just the kind of person I am. And I make this gigantic mess in my house, like cooking and preparing. And I invite our neighbors over and our neighbor and her two daughters who were, it was my oldest daughter's best friend. And I was super close with this neighbor. I bring them over and we have this giant feast. And Brad has been working all day. He has no idea that I'm preparing. Oh yeah. Like this is totally on my own. And he walks in and he's tired and he's just like, what is this? And I'm just like, it's Cinco de Mayo, right? It it was a long day. Uh, May 5th, you know, I had just become a director of engineering, so I was trying to figure out what that meant. A coworker and I, we saw earlier today, we had a surprise million-dollar overrun, which I had never seen a million-dollar overrun before in my life, let alone a surprise one. And that was not going to be the worst thing that happened that day, far from it. And we have a photo. We took a photo of that day. There's a photo of all of us together sitting at this table, eating all this food and stuff like that. And for the longest time, like, I I couldn't look at that. You know, Gavin, I was pushing him on the Cinco de Mayo party, and Gavin wants to go outside, and he... Wants to, be, wants to swing, and so I push him on swing, and then really his bedtime, because I think his bedtime was around 7, and I, I said, hey, buddy, you need to go in for your bedtime. And he's like, no, just a little bit <laughs> more push on the swing. And this swing was, you know, it was just between an A-frame, and it was, like, barely swinging, because he, he was two at the time, and he was, like, no more than a foot off the ground. And I remember just looking away, and when I looked back, he uh, he had fallen off. He could hear him crying, and I raced over to him, and I picked him up, and his eyes rolled back into to his head, and instantly knew something was not okay. Something was not okay. And Amanda has a group of folks there going big for Cinco de Mayo. And one of these folks was Amanda's friend and neighbor, Katie Abernathy. So we had finished dinner and, you know, the kids were out playing. And so Amanda and I were in the kitchen kind of wrapping up the stuff off the table when Gavin had his accident when he fell. And 
Brad came in, brought him into the living room, and it was very clear that it was serious from his voice. And so, you know, Amanda went right into get things done mode. So she came in, she said, I need you to take the kids to your house. I said, no problem. And if you looked, like, my whole kitchen was covered in rice and all kinds of food. And then the world stopped. It, I, I don't know why that memory, like, sticks with me so much. It's just, I think what it is, is how quickly life can change. From my focus being on, you know, let's do this big silly celebration to my world's on fire. In a moment, in a short fall from a backyard swing, two-year-old Gavin had suffered a traumatic brain injury. He had a seizure. He stopped breathing. He was rushed by ambulance to a hospital nearby, then life flighted to Riley Children's Hospital in downtown Indianapolis, where he underwent emergency surgery. A lot of folks would believe is that if you can get to the hospital, everything's going to be okay. And we we didn't really understand the magnitude of the impact that was going to happen for days later. Um, And really, I'm not sure... (laughs) Even now, we understand the full impact, but certainly we were both carrying a seriousness, a serious naivety to what we were walking into. There was just fear at that point and unknown and being confused because I think if if it had made a little more sense, right, because like his fall wasn't far or he looked fine. He didn't look, there was no physical injury on him. And so it just wasn't making sense, right? Like, I see what he looks like, but the doctors are telling me this, and I don't know. And the surgery took several hours to save his life. It was all about just trying to keep him alive. And that's what they did. That surgery and, and everything that they did was to keep him alive. When they stabilized him, that's when you start talking about what's happened. Let's slow down and say, okay, what do we know has happened? And then what do we know is coming next? And pretty early on, we had a, a doctor come in and say, okay, let's explain this to you because, you know, we recognize that you don't know what is, what's going on. And he said, your son has lost a great deal of blood. He needed multiple blood transfusions. He has extensive damage to his brain. And he, at this point, was still in a coma, a medically induced coma. But just by his scans, they said, he is vegetative. Your son will not sit up on his own. He will not talk. He will not walk. He will not know who you are. And all that physician gave us was a list of the things that our son would never do. The only thing he was, was alive. And I'm not angry because I know what this physician was trying to do was to prepare us for what he saw coming. But when you have someone list out all the things your your child will never do 
that is jarring. I mean, really, that's when I, there are, there's so many things that I can talk about with this story, but this part is the part that makes me shake again. One thing that struck me was that Gavin looked fine. Even he had unseen threads. Brad and Amanda have kept some memorabilia from the early months after Gavin's accident. Cards, notes, special items. They don't look at it much, and until we sat down together, Brad had never looked at it. You could see how hard this was on Brad. I was in tears, our producer, audio engineer, Brad and Amanda, all are in tears just being in that space with them. Amanda calls it the hospital box. When we sat down, it had been more than eight years since the accident. The feelings are still raw, and trauma, while seen in Gavin and unseen in Amanda and Brad, revealed itself as I got the honor of witnessing how those items impacted them both, eight years later. It took up a lot of intention for me to control my sobbing, just imagining how that must have felt in real time for them. I even find myself getting teary today listening to this. The first photo we took was maybe four hours after his initial surgery. And so it's, it's like the next morning. Yeah, it's right that now. morning. And um, I remember thinking the reason I took the photo was that it was the last photo I'd ever get of him alive. And even though it's he has a neck brace and he has uh, you know tubes and he just he doesn't even look like our son because he is so swollen and cranial sensors sticking out of his head. Right. He has a he has a giant cranial probe sticking out the top of his head. I remember thinking in that moment, like, this is the last photo I'll get of our son before he's gone. And now when I look back at that photo. I can look at it a lot easier than I could, but for years, probably, that photo stayed locked on my phone, and we didn't look at it, and we certainly never shared it with anyone. We have this photo of, he's still in a medically induced coma, but he's holding Brad's hand. Yeah, he's holding my finger for the first time. And you know, this is in that period where the doctors are still telling us he'll He'll never know who you are. He'll never walk. He'll never talk, whatever. And we're like, but he held our hand, right? He is holding on to us. Amanda and I sat on her back porch, and she told me more about those early days in the hospital. It was both inspiring and wrenching to listen to her. Hard to even imagine what she was describing was survivable. In those moments where Brad and I were sitting in that room and we had just heard from this doctor about the things our son would never do, we just wanted hope. And we asked them, we asked the medical team, tell us one story where you were wrong. Tell us one story where it was better than what the scan looks. Or tell us one story where they got more than they thought, right? And as odd as it sounds, no one had that story. Because we ask, we ask social workers, we ask doctors, we ask nurses, and they're afraid of giving you hope. What we did is we almost saw that as a checklist. Okay, how do we get him to walk again? How do we get him to sit up again? 
How do we get him to know who we are? And for the first time when they brought him out of his coma, they let me hold him. And it was 36 hours after his surgery. And I I hadn't gone 36 hours without holding my child, you know. And they put me in a chair and the nurses carried him all full of wires and, and turbaned and wrapped and everything. They brought him over and they laid him in my arms and I'm just crying and I'm talking to him and he looks up at my face and he just keeps looking at me. And he just stays there with me. He doesn't he doesn't fuss, he doesn't, you know, he he was in so much pain at that point. But we just sit there together and I just hold him as long as they let me. And it was just kind of in that moment that I was just like whatever it takes. We're going to do whatever it takes. And that's that's what it's been for eight years. When Amanda and Brad decided to do whatever it takes, they were thinking of Gavin. They would soon learn what that would take from them and everyone in the family. No one in the trauma's orbit would ever be the same. Would whatever it takes be more than they could take? This has been episode one of Threads Unseen, unraveling a story of trauma. In our next episode, the trauma produces an unbearable load for the family, and many threads begin to unravel from belief systems to connection to self and others. This podcast is produced by Bloombase. For Brad, coaching was a space to explore what healing might mean as a part of his whole self exploration. Apart from other important lovers in his healing, like therapy, which is notably distinct from coaching, Brad utilized the coaching space to reveal his whole self, even the hidden parts. And just like Brad, all parts of us are potential areas to transform. At Bloombase, our coaching approach is designed to maximize your whole leader potential. We are your catalyst as you close the gap between where you are now and your maximum potential. Growth happens in hard spaces, and deep growth happens in relationship where there's a partner with you in those hard spaces. Our coaching partnerships result in high-performing, emotionally intelligent leaders whose growth and impact continue to ripple long after they have left our engagement. Learn more at thisisbloombase.com.